Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today... Today, our guest has 15 years of law enforcement analysis experience. She spent time as a records clerk, juvenile probation officer, and fingerprint technician with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. She is currently the Crime Intelligence Analyst Supervisor with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. She holds a master's in administration of justice. Here to talk about flying squirrels. Please welcome Jessica Full. Jessica, how are we doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I am doing well. So we are fellow Tallahassean. I guess that's how, that's the word for us. Is we're in the same city. We're a m- couple miles apart, but it sounds like it's going to storm here. <laughs> yes, it does. It looks cloudy out there today. Oh, but it seems like it cooled off. Right. It's, which is always nice because this this summer seems like it's been brutal in terms of the heat. I don't I don't know if I have bad memory. I'm just have maybe recency bias. It's been a miserable summer. That's for sure. I don't I don't remember it ever being this hot, not even in Mississippi. I think my parents are going on 28 days of no rain and over 95 degree heat so they've been having wildfires over there it's it's been a crazy summer for sure where is that they live in uh waveland mississippi it's okay. hancock county on the on the gulf coast look all right yeah <laughs> and the humidity so you gotta factor that in too it's right over there by the swamps that's true oh. well hey a couple months it'll be october and hopefully it'll be a little better and then we'll so. holiday season, right? And then then it'll be, what do we call that? Outdoor eating season for us Floridians. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, Jessica, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, I just kind of stumbled into it. So I had had to move to Jacksonville. I'd always wanted to be in law enforcement my uh, entire life since I was a little kid. And obviously I went to college I got a bachelor's in criminal justice and a master's in administration of justice, as you talked about earlier. And after I graduated with my master's, uh, at the time I was married and we got stationed in Pensacola. That's where I was a juvenile probation officer for the Department of Juvenile Justice in the state of Florida. And then we got transferred over to Jacksonville, and that's where I got a job at the sheriff's office as a fingerprint technician to get my foot in the door. And I spent about a year doing that when my captain at the time got transferred over to the crime and intel unit. And he said, is that something you'd be interested in? And I interviewed for it, got the position, and that's all she wrote after that. <laughs> nice. So uh, when you think back of your days as a juvenile probation officer, what comes to mind? Ooh. It was it was definitely crazy. I it was in Pensacola. I actually had all the in college I had done a dissertation on juvenile sex offenders. So mm-hmm. they gave me all the juvenile sex offenders at the time and it was on intensive probation, what they call that, and you had to see them three at least three times a week. So I stayed busy. Obviously you had high caseloads, but it was it was 
a very interesting time. Also, it was kind of difficult for me because I wanted to save all of them. I had had a good home life growing up with parents that were uh, involved and came to every sporting event, everything I ever did. And you look at some of these kids' life and and it's, you know, sad and you want to take care of them instead of, you know, having to enforce. So that's why I decided about three or four years of doing that and not having the success stories that you necessarily want. I decided that I didn't want to do that career path down that when I got to Jacksonville. Now, did you, have you followed up with any of the ones that uh, you were supervising or to see how they turned out? I do have one kid that I do keep in touch with on Facebook. He was the one that touched my heart the most and he's doing great. He's successful. They actually named a scholarship after him. So if I had one success story, I said, it's always, it's, it's him. And he, they said, he's still doing good and and succeeded finally because he just had really been dealt a bad hand so i'm glad to see that he succeeded i had several that ended up in uh prison for life for homicide so mm-hmm. you know it's just it's just a, it was a sad job for me fulfilling but overall i just didn't think i could do that for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah yeah so you go from you know that chaos to then you know as a fingerprint technician, I would think that it was probably a little bit more stable. Oh, absolutely. There was, we had to work the radio at the time. So we had to work all the NCIC, FCIC hits. So -hmm. if someone was out, stopped with somebody, um, we would have to then send the teletype, confirm who they were, things like that. Cause obviously you don't want them to arrest the wrong person. So at times it could be stressful when they're radio was really hopping we had officers all over you know jacksonville stopping people and if they had warrants you know we had to respond and when you work the teletype you only have a certain amount of time to respond i can't even remember because that was more than 15 (laughs) years ago i think it was five or ten minutes and you had to like respond we had to run back and get a file make sure that this was the same person and then obviously when they would arrest them then their fingerprints would come through and we'd have to compare fingerprints with their jacket as we called it so there was times that it could be stressful but it wasn't nearly as heartbreaking as being a probation officer was when you just couldn't fix the problems you know Mm -hmm. for these kids how did uh, being a fingerprint technician help you later when you became an analyst? I would say you had to really be pay attention to detail because when someone was newly arrested, it was our job as a fingerprint te- technician to classify those fingerprints. So you had to be really meticulous in counting the the fingerprint classifications and you know whether it was a loop or a whirl, things like that. <laughs> so you had to really, you know, pay attention. You couldn't just guesstimate because fingerprints, I mean, we all have unique fingerprints. Not all of us have the same one. So even even twins. So I would say that that probably helped me for that as well as, you know, I already had familiarity with criminal histories, you know, being a probation officer. But, you know, as the records clerk's fingerprint technician, we also 
looked at criminal histories, you have to confirm that this was the same person. So you're looking at date of birth, you're looking at addresses, you know, you're having to go to different databases and look at this stuff because you don't want them to arrest the wrong person uh, based on your information. We also had to confirm, you know, for, for petty theft at one point it's a felony if they have so many prior convictions. So you were in charge of that. We also were in charge of doing all the convicted felon status checks. So when they called me and they said, okay, is this person a convicted felon? And then they take your ID number down and they put you in a report as, hey, you confirmed, you <laughs> know, this person confirmed this person was a convicted felon. So you had to make sure that you were 100% accurate because you don't want to be the reason that they <laughs> arrest somebody um, on a charge based on them being a convicted felon when they're not a convicted felon or charge them with felony when they didn't have, you know, three prior convictions for petty theft. So I think that really helped me with becoming an analyst and doing a good job at it because you had to really pay attention to detail because your job was on the line doing those kind of things. Just as, as with analysts, we can't make the wrong choice. We can't give them bad information. All right. And then, so when you first become an analyst with Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, what are you focusing on? What's your goals? So I started out as a public safety analyst one, and they had me to start with be a patrol analyst. And I was assigned to zone two. There's six zones in Jacksonville. And so basically you're working on patrol related things. You're looking at uh, burglaries and things like that overall as a zone. And then from there, I progressed on to becoming the analyst for the beaches. So there was a federal grant that allowed each beach agency. So Jacksonville is consolidated, but there's also three beach agencies, Jack's Beach, Neptune Beach, and Atlantic Beach. And so they got a federal grant to send an analyst out there one day per week at each beach. And then I was also at the JSO headquarters for two days out of the week. And out there, it's kind of the same as like patrol, but you're also doing like all the investigations. So if they have uh, sex battery, robberies, homicides, any of that, you're working as well. And then I did that a couple of years. And after that, I went to a burglary and economic crimes. And then after that, I went to the robbery unit and was assigned there. Now, does Jacksonville have uh, crimes that you found to be unique that you didn't, you don't hear anybody, any other analysts or maybe around the country talk about? No, none that I could think of. I mean, it's, it's a large metropolis, I would call it. So you saw everything there from gangs to homicide, robbery, you know, sexual assaults, just like I think you'd see probably in any of these major metropolises. It's not really probably a small town. I grew up in a real small town. Everybody knows everybody. So it was a little eye-opening for me, just the amount of crime that was occurring. I think at one point it was the murder capital of Florida. We, I mm -hmm. think we even had more than Miami at the time. So that was real eye-opening. But other than that, I didn't really see anything that was like super unique that you wouldn't really find everywhere. It's the same, same yeah. crime. Yeah, that's because you stayed on the beaches the whole time. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, did, yeah. we were just worried about people taking people's wallets when they were uh, out at the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, this brings us to your analyst badge story then. For those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career-defining case or project that an analyst works. And 
for you, the first one that we have here is a 2011. We're at the sheriff's office and we're dealing with a homicide. And so this was at the time where I was assigned out to the beaches. So I was working at Jack's Beach and it was late October. I think it was about October 28th. And it was the fourth homicide of the year. And it was a father who had been shot and left for dead near a dumpster. So we went out there to the scene. I want to say we worked like, I want to say it was 72 to 96 hours straight, just following lead after lead, trying to identify potential suspects. And we were ultimately able to connect the homicide to a crime ring out of California. So it was obviously it was, it ended up being a, a drug deal where they tried to then rob the guy and it just, it went south pretty quick and ended up shooting the individual. So I had to work on linking cell phone records together, text messages. We ended up having a link chart of over 30 individuals. And the only information we had about the suspect was that he was a white male. He went by the nickname Pest and he was possibly from California. So within two weeks, we were able to identify everybody. I was able to identify Pest. I actually used a program called Links to identify a potential Pest nickname out of California, reached out to, he was supposedly on probation, reached out to the juvenile probation officer back there in California and was ultimately able to determine that his real name and everything like that. So on November 11th, two weeks after the homicide, they arrested one individual in California for murder and two locals for armed robbery. And I believe the two armed robbery guys got off, but the one that committed the murder, he's doing 35 years in prison. But the crazy thing about this bad story is that this was 2011 and this came full circle because in 2020, I'm sitting here at FWC and I get a request. It was an illegal commercial fishing and people illegally selling fish when they didn't have the proper licenses. And come to find out it was one of those suspects for armed robbery. He was one of the investigators here in Jacksonville. He was also her suspect. So I was actually able to give her a call and say, hey, I know this guy. I know his criminal history. I know his mama, his daddy, his baby mamas. I know where he likes to fish. I know he always rides his bicycle. Like I was able to give her all kind of information because I had worked that case in depth. You know, we listened to jail hundreds of thousands of jail calls it felt like and that was back before they had all these cool you know analytical saviors is what i call them is i would have to listen to the jail call and hand type it all out and transcribe it that way (laughs) so and now it's 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 now it's voice to text oh yeah and well now we actually have this program here plx that actually will transcribe the jail calls for you you upload it into the program And it uses, I don't know how it does it, but it spits it right out. It spits a whole transcript out in like literally less than a minute. Whereas it probably took me three hours to type every single word of a hour jail call. Yeah. I was really hoping that you were going to say that he was trying to sell pest. And that's how he got on your radar there now. (laughs) No fish, but... (laughs) Yeah. Did you find out like where he got that nickname pest? 
I don't I don't remember if they ever asked him when they interviewed him. <laughs> I know they flew out to the investigators, flew out to California. I don't know if, if the guys in Juvie gave it to him or if his dad gave uh, it to him. The, uh, the kid had had a rough life yeah. as well, so there's no telling. He could have just been an annoying pest <laughs> to his dad. Who knows? But... It was it was an it was an interesting nickname. You mentioned working consecutive hours when you discovered the homicide. Are you on the scene? Or are you still back in the office doing all this work? No, they actually let me go out on the scene with them. I had worked there for a while. You know, we had all got pretty close, so I actually got to go in a bearcat with them when we hit the house. They actually let me give the speech over the uh, speaker saying that this is Jack's Beach Police. Uh, we have a warrant. Open up. So mm-hmm. that that was pretty cool. And then I got to go in the house with them while, while they were searching the house. Um, I had my laptop. We were looking at evidence. I was, you know, okay, here's this note. It's got this person's name, this person's phone number. I'm doing it. I remember it was, it was funny because my laptop died. And there was this JSO officer there because it actually was in the house was in JSO jurisdiction. (laughs) And I was like, officer, I need your laptop. I need your laptop. I got (laughs) to keep working. I got to keep looking this up. And the guy didn't tell me, but he was supposed he was already off duty and was supposed to be home to pick up his kid or something. He was like, you were just like on fire. And I was just like, I got to help this girl. (laughs) Finally, the chief was like, let let the dude go home. We'll go back to the office and we'll look (laughs) it up and we'll plug your computer in. So, but yeah, I was out, I was out there with them. Hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating uh, to, to be on the scene and to have the access, to have the remote access actually there of being able to run so many different queries and databases on the road. No, absolutely. It's, it's time, time savings and you don't have to be out there. You can do it real time. And I think that that's um, what, what made a big difference in this case is that we could, I could look up stuff real time and it wasn't delayed getting back to me and having to wait till they fed me the information. I was right there with them. So then, you know, you went over some of the things that you did while there at the sheriff's office. Is there anything else that comes to mind as you look back at your time with the sheriff's office? It just really gave me a, a good foundation, a good training basis to know how to be an analyst. And I'm grateful for the time that I had there because I think it really helped me prepare for my new role when I became the crime into analyst supervisor here at FWC. All right, so let's talk about that transition then. How did that get on your radar and transferring from the sheriff's office to the uh, Fish and Wildlife? So after the sheriff's office, I did a couple years at Atlantic Beach Police Department, which was one of the agencies that I was the analyst at when I was at the sheriff's office. And they needed an accreditation manager because they wanted to get accredited. And a lot of analysts are really good at accreditation because we're meticulous to detail. So I decided I would go give that a try to see, you know, try something different. I didn't really, it really wasn't my cup of tea. So I actually, it's crazy. I actually did the accreditation assessment here at Florida Fish and Wildlife and The accreditation manager um, was my friend, so when they were looking for a crime intel analyst uh, supervisor, she gave me a call and she said, you should apply. 
it was also <laughs> closer to uh, Mississippi where my parents live and, you know, they're, they were aging. So I was trying to get back closer than, you know, nine, nine and a half hours away in Jacksonville. So I applied for it and I got it. And the crazy thing was, is that my, one of the guys on my interview board who ended up being my captain, he's still currently my captain, was one of the guys that I had to interview for the accreditation when I came to do their accreditation assessment. <laughs> and he said, I remember you, you asked me all these tough questions. I said, I'm so sorry. I was just doing my job. <laughs> now, do you ask you any tough questions? Uh, of course, they were all tough, but I, like I tell people today, I don't even know what they asked me. The air conditioner was broke. I was in a, a pantsuit. It was the summertime. I was trying oh, not to man. pass out. So oh, I said, I, I came back out and I, I told my husband, I said, I don't remember what they asked me. I don't remember <laughs> what they said, but let's just hope I got it. And I did. So, yeah, this whole idea of analysis inside this fish and wildlife conservation commission. So I guess first let's, let's talk about the idea of a commission to begin with, because I, that is different from the normal concept, I think of either a state department or a city department. Right. So we're actually run by a commission. There's seven uh, commissioners and they meet five times uh, a year. And what they do there is they hear staff reports, they consider rule proposals and any other type commission business. Uh, it's built into the Florida constitution. So the commissioners are appointed by the governor. And then there is obviously a a chairman. And so they're able to vote on rule changes and regulations to whereas we don't have to go to the Senate and things like that when they're really trying to, to do some things. That's why they made the commission. So they're able to, to change some rule proposals and regulations like that by voting. So we have commission meetings each five times a year and they're open to the public and the public can come in and have public comment about any of the topics they'll they'll put on an agenda. So obviously with that, you know, we sometimes have contentious topics. Obviously you have people that are for it. You have people that are against some of the things, but they're able to come and speak freely about it because we are a commission. Um, and they basically call it state, they call it stakeholder input. So they want to get the input from the stakeholders and then they'll have uh, a vote. Sometimes I've seen them postpone the vote multiple times so they get more information. It's actually pretty interesting. And they're actually published televised live on a Florida, cha Florida channel. If, and you can just Google it if anybody ever wants to, to watch them. They're pretty interesting. <laughs> so, you know, in your role, did you support this? So if you mentioned if they needed more research or they needed additional information, was one of your duties to supply that information? So it depends on what it is, but sometimes we do have to supply them stats and things like that. So if they want to know, okay, well, how many people actually have a venomous reptile license and then how, how many people are actually receiving violations for those licenses. So we do a lot of the stat work for it. So, I mean, is it is it just a few people? Is it a few thousand people? Because that can make the difference in their decision-making process. Another way it affects us is that we have to monitor social media 
for the commission meetings because we do have some contentious topics like aquatic spraying, captive wildlife regulation, rule changes, things like that, where you have, you know, bear hunts, you have people for it, you have people against it, and you have people that are very passionate on both sides. And sometimes that passion, you know, can flow out on social media and not so positive a light where sometimes it can, you know, be perceived as threatening. So mm -hmm. we have to monitor social media and then obviously, you know, conduct workups and and things on those individuals just to make sure that they're not actually going to, you know, be a be a threat to any of our commissioners. Yeah. Cuz I mean, obviously if somebody if the commission makes a decision to restrict the hunt or mm -hmm. the catch for lack of a better term, a lot of these folks, that's their livelihood. That's how they put food on the table, literally. Absolutely. So for them, it's a big deal when these rule changes come down and then they have to adjust what they're doing when they could be struggling to begin with. So it's uh, certainly it's not just about fishing with your son on this Saturday. I mean, this is what people do for their uh, livelihood. Absolutely. And they and they will come to the meeting and say that and they'll come in droves sometimes to talk about that. And the commissioners do listen to them. And that's why they like to a lot of times they have working groups. So I know with all these captive wildlife rule changes we have, because that is how a lot of people make their money. That is their livelihood. Mm -hmm. It's some of their passion. So what they'll do is they'll actually have working groups with the stakeholders so that they can get their stakeholder input as well, because mm -hmm. you obviously don't want to cut out people because it is their livelihood. Mm -hmm. So they work with people to try to get, make the best decisions. But sometimes, you know, those decisions have to be made because, you know, we don't want certain animals animals to become extinct mm -hmm. um so sometimes you have to put those limits um on animals the same with like the and i didn't know any of this stuff before i came to work here no. <laughs> but it's the same with like like fisheries you know sometimes mm -hmm. they have to they have to stop the harvest of certain fish because they're getting depleted and you have to have time for them to you know for the numbers to rise back up to where you can then go catch them i mean it's just it, it just happens that way so, mm -hmm. and that's why we have the commission there, you know, our agency is about conservation and we're trying to conserve the wildlife for our future generations. And if we just have a free for all, there won't be anything in 20 years for anybody to enjoy. Yeah. Well, I had, had sent you this morning the, the video I found on the red snapper restriction. And I'll put that in the, for the listeners. I'll put that link in the in the show notes. It's a two minute video, but it was showing both sides. The one fisherman was like, if you're restricting the red snapper, what people will do is they'll catch a red snapper and then they don't think it's big enough. So they'll throw it back and then like a shark or something else will uh, come and eat it. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. then, and then and then you know, on the other side is it's talking about the conservation and talking about the quality you know, keeping the, the red snapper population healthy. So it's right. in that two minute video, it was interesting to to hear both sides of the argument. Yeah, and there's definitely always both sides to the argument. <laughs> this is Michelle Snow. and just want you to remember to build trust with integrity. Hi, I'm Kyle Stoker, and I'm encouraging you to vote in the IACA elections. 
between August and September, you have the opportunity to vote for your candidate. So make sure you go to the IASA website and vote because our membership has a voice in who leads the organization and you want to make sure that your voice is heard. Thank you very much. Hey, this is Jamie Roush. Have you ever noticed that some people just text you, hi, how are you? Can you go get drinks? Six different text messages. Don't be that person. Tell me what you need to tell me in one text message. I'm busy. So what are some day-to-day types of tasks that you're doing? Because what I imagine is in one aspect of it, there's going to be a lot of similarities actually to a law enforcement analyst that works at a police department. But obviously you're dealing with something totally different in terms of that it is dealing with fish and wildlife. So I imagine that there's going to be a lot of differences as well. Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of similarities and differences and and I can go into that. So basically when I started, it was just me and as a supervisor, and then I had one analyst and an OPS, and then it got down to where it was just me by myself. And now we've grown um, our intelligence unit to uh, five analysts. We have an internship program and we have two GIS mappers. And there's almost 900 officers and investigators. So what uh, we do as analysts is every day we're processing the tips that come into the agency. So those are people reporting somebody, you know, messing with a gopher tortoise burrows or somebody catching sharks, somebody catching a Goliath grouper and taking them out of water, things like that. So we process those tips, identify who the subjects are. We also process all the field intel reports. So that's another thing that is similar to sheriff's offices and police departments is field intel reports. So we're processing those field intel reports, sending them out to where they need to go. We obviously still do all the workups on, you know, suspects. Workups, you know, consist of who they are, their phone numbers, email addresses, who their parents are, siblings, baby mamas, ex-wives, criminal history, where they work, businesses they own, properties they own, all their social media, police reports they've been in. So it runs the gamut, but that's that's a bulk of what our work is, is doing workups. We do threat assessments, link charts. We do all the officer safety bulletins, attempt to identify. We do financial analysis. We do analysis of all the social media returns, cell phone returns, things like that. So there's no day that's like the day before. It's it's always <laughs> something different. So, you know, sometimes when you're working in these police departments or sheriff's offices, you're assigned to like a unit and then that's mm-hmm. all you work. For instance, robbery. I just worked all the robberies. Here you're you don't get really bored or fixated on like one thing because you're just doing all kind of stuff. Social media monitoring is another thing we do. And then in in my role as a supervisor, I also do all our covert operations and I work the covert undercover operations and also assist getting them undercover credentials and and things like that. So that was a really neat thing I started to do and I really like that. The differences in wildlife analysis is really the intelligence-led policing part. That was probably the most difficult 
hurdle that I had to overcome was trying to figure out prediction. They wanted like crime prediction. Well, it's easy with robberies or auto burglaries or things like that because you can look at the patterns. You can look at, you know, a map. So I remember a robbery we worked where he was hitting banks that were off the interstate by Motel 6s. So you could pretty much tell an officer they were going to do a robbery deployment. Hey, these are the ones he hasn't hit, but this is around his pattern. So they could, you know, sit up and, and do surveillance. Well, we don't really have crimes like robberies and auto burglaries and things like that here in FWC. I mean, we do at the state parks. We actually are working some catalytic converter thefts right now, which is something I used to do at the sheriff's office. So some things do come full circle. But so how we implemented that was we started, we, we do do heat maps for certain things like BUIs, where their hotspots are, night hunting, because they do want us to still do surveillance and things like that. It's just you had to, had to change my mindset of, okay, this is going to be really easy to, I got to figure out how to help them be able to predict more crime when there's not really like a robbery, burglary, things like that. Our crimes are wildlife trafficking, things like that, where, you know, you can't really predict that as well. Um, ours are based on, you know, seasons, mini lobster season, deer season, turkey season, things like that. So that that's where the differences um, lie, I think, from traditional policing analyst. Hmm. So do you feel that you maybe get better uh, public support with these type of cases? Because I'm thinking with the tips that you might get from the public, if they see somebody doing one of these things that you get, they'll be more willing to get involved. Whereas uh, I think a lot of times people might see some, you know, might see something in in the city, they might, might not want to get involved type thing. But oh, because, of, because of the passion of fish and wildlife, I would imagine that your tip line is pretty active as well. Absolutely. We probably process close to a thousand tips a year. I mean, people are very passionate about wildlife and we get tips all the time and, and people, they just send their information. They'll be like, call me, here's my email. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Cause you, <laughs> you go in some places and you're trying to find witnesses to a homicide. People mm -hmm. are not as willing as these people who see somebody who's put push pins through a Muscovy duck. We, we've had some crazy, crazy stuff happening and people get, people get out downright outraged about, and we'll, sometimes we'll probably see, receive 20, 30 tips on the same thing because it just makes people mad and they will send it in and they want the person caught and and burned at the stake pretty much well, <laughs> sometimes i've seen people make those comments and i'm like yeah. wow they are really getting mad about you know a shark or a duck let's get let's get that mad about people but <laughs> yeah. yeah that's bad that's been an eye-opening thing too i just didn't realize the amount of people who are seriously passionate about wildlife which you know they can't really speak for themselves but are defend themselves some of the animals, so I guess I can see it, but it, it that was nice that, that people are more willing to help 
um, us, obviously the criminals are not, but <laughs> for the most part, the public is, is pretty supportive of and, and the conservation that it does. All right. Let's get a better idea of some of the cases that you work. So this brings us to your other analyst badge story. And uh, this is, as I did with the in- intro, uh, deals with flying squirrels. Yes. Have you? Do you know what they look like? Did you Did you look them up? I did look them up. So that was There's, part of my homework. So I did yeah. look up and le- read a little bit about the case. Yeah, they're cute little. They're cute little squirrels. They're. I mean, they don't look like regular squirrels. So that was a operation that we worked for several years, and that actually came in. I think it was January of 2019 as a tip. You know, mm-hmm. one of these tips that just came in from a citizen that he said that he had seen people illegally trapping flying squirrels um, in Marion County and flying squirrels are protected um, in Florida. So we worked a case for about 19 months. They ended up arresting seven people uh, after over 3,600 flying squirrels have been trafficked. And it was, it was for international pet trade. So we found that these flying squirrels were being caught by the poachers in multiple counties and then they were being sold to a wildlife dealer in Bushnell who actually did have a license, but obviously that license doesn't include flying squirrels being that they are protected. So what he was doing was he was laundering those through his licensed business and he was actually saying that they were captive bred and not wild caught. So after the case, we identified seven people and, and they arrested arrested all of them, but there was over 10,000 traps where they had caught these over 3,000 flying squirrels in over three years. Then they were taking, because they're such a hot commodity overseas, all these little squirrels were then taken, driven to Chicago, where they were exported over to North Korea. But this, this wildlife dealer was also doing protective freshwater turtles as well as alligator. So, mm. and he was making a lot of money, like over... in profits. Mm. And so because I had worked a lot of turtle cases, you know, I just assumed that they were either using these for pets or maybe the turtles, they eat them and they believe they have medicinal value. Mm -hmm. So, but they was actually using these in little videos. He was dressing the little flying squirrels up in little videos. He had like little helmets on it, had a little motorcycle jacket on one of them, and he was making like a kid's show for kids to watch with these flying squirrels. Was that here or was that over in North Korea? North Korea. Okay. All right. Hmm. I don't know that anybody over here is watching it, but (laughs) I I watched a little bit of it and I said, well, that's interesting. That was my question of what particular about North Korea would want to have flying squirrels. Like I said, he was that they use them in the pet, the pet trade. People mm-hmm. like them as pets. So you think about North Korea, they have little tiny apartments and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they need animals that are very small. So they were used for pets as well as, like I said, he was making a TV show. Like that was, I would have never even guessed that when somebody said, oh, they're taking flying squirrels. <laughs> I mean, this many of them. And then he was making little kids show with dressing up the fine squirrels. So that was, that was, that was definitely an interesting case. So the Um, local dealer, did you say if he raised them himself, it would have been okay, but he wasn't allowed to actually trap and then obviously export them out of the country. But so if, but he, he could have had these, these squirrels 
on his own if he if he would have raised them. Is that my understanding? That's pretty much what happens in most of these, you know, any type of animals, unless they're completely prohibited. You have captive bred, which those are the people that are breeding turtles and snakes and any kind of animal like that versus wild caught. And that's which wild caught is them just taking it out of the wild. So a lot of times with this wildlife trafficking, that's what we see is these people will have legitimate businesses where they are breeding certain animals, just for instance, turtles. But then they're also, because they can't breed them fast enough, they're going out and having people catch them in the wild. And then they're laundering through their business and mixing them with the captive bread. And that makes it difficult to identify and figure out because i'm guessing that's their defense they're, when they do get caught they're probably saying oh i i've raised all of these but none of these yes. are from the wild and that's why we have biologists who can tell the difference like you can tell the difference between a captive bred and a wild caught turtle i mean there's i don't know this differences because i'm not a biologist but we bring the biologists out on those cases because they're able to identify those that are wild caught um you know, a lot of people probably don't know, but wildlife trafficking is one of the most prof- profitable crimes because it's a high reward and a low risk. Unfortunately, a lot of our um, wildlife crimes uh, are misdemeanors at best, and they get a, you know, fine, which if you're making $40,000 off a of flying squirrel and we hit you with a $100 fine, they're going to keep doing it because mm-hmm. 40000 versus a hundred. But wildlife trafficking is the fourth most profitable transnational crime, only behind the, the drug trade, arms trade, and human trafficking. So mm-hmm. the, they estimate it's a multi-billion dollar activity. And that's why I think it's so prevalent here in, in uh, Florida, um, because we just have, you know, especially for turtles, we just got wrapped up probably last year, and it might have been 2021, and in 2009, FWC had banned the commercialization, the commercial catch of turtles in the wild. So you couldn't you couldn't catch them anymore. And and if if there were, there was only so certain ones that could be caught in the wild. And then you had a limit. You know, most of the possession limit for I'm pretty sure all the turtles that are allowed to be caught is two. So when people are going out there and catching 100 or 200 of them, you know that's that's not good because it when you catch these and exploit these turtles you know we risk them being extinct habitat loss pollution things like that you don't even think about but florida happens to be ideal for illegal trafficking of a lot of animals especially turtles because of our diversity accessibility and in the year you know our year-round temperature i mean it's just you know we don't really have you know, cold, cold, snow, winter. So there, we have a lot of animals in the state of Florida, including animals that are not indigenous uh, to Florida. So the one case we worked was against strictly reptiles, and he's he's the infamous lizard king. He actually wrote a book. People can go back and look at that if they're <laughs> interested. But he was illegal, illegally harvesting turtles from the wild and smuggling them out of the U.S. to sell overseas and was falsely labeling the turtles when they were going overseas as having been bred in captivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were going over to China and Japan and elsewhere because over there they're very popular 
for pets as well as food and medicinal value. But, but sometimes these turtles were going for as much as $10,000 each mm. at auctions. And we actually worked at it in conjunction with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and he ended up getting seven months in federal prison. Yeah, but, he, but again, just, you know, again, seven months and, you know, I guess it is federal time, but still, if you're making thousands of dollars per turtle, it still makes it worth exactly. the while. So it's not, you're not looking at 35 years to life, you're looking at less than a year in in federal prison. And, and that impacts our job as analysts because, you know, when FWC bans these type things, then that just creates a black market. So we've worked a lot of these turtle cases because because people are just taking them from the wild because there's such a high demand for them that they can't, like I said, breed them in captivity fast enough, and then they launder them through there. So we've actually started focusing on financial crimes and following the money. Several of us analysts as well as investigators just became ACAMS certified, which is anti-money laundering, and I'm a certified economic crimes forensic examiner because we want to be able to to really make an impact on the these wildlife crimes and we're going to have to go after you know stiffer type crimes so actually we were pretty proud of it we actually were able to get wildlife trafficking as a predicate for the Florida RICO Act so any violation of title 68 which is the illegal sale purchase collection harvest capture or possession of wild animal life, I think it's freshwater, aquatic, or marine life, is now, can be now a RICO, a predicate. So whereas before we had to have some kind of other predicate to be able to charge these guys with RICO or anything like that, because it it is a business, you know, they are racketeering. So that was, that's really a cool thing that just happened within the last year or so. Nice. Hmm. And you know, listen to you describe this, and you mentioned yesterday in the prep call, you know, there's five analysts there, two GIS specialists, and, and you're, you are working, supporting 900 officers. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the thousands of tips you get a year. You're talking about the commission meetings that happen handful of times a year. I don't know how you do it with like seven or eight people. How do you pick which ones that you're going to run with? Oh, we run with them. We run with them all. We, everything that comes in, we work, we work it as fast as we can. Some of these long-term cases like the flying squirrel and the the lizard king case, obviously those were two to three year operations. So It does take up a lot of my time because I normally work those cases where you're, you know, looking through the social media returns, the cell phone returns, building your case, all that kind of stuff. So we we pretty much work everything that comes in. But for these long term covert operations, they pick the most exploited. They try to pick the most exploited animal at the time and and work that and try try to make a dent. Another good one we just got finished wrapping up in January was Operation Viper. And again, you can Google that and, and see about it and look at all the, the snakes. But it was multi-year operation and and we had received tips and intel reports probably for about a year indicating that there was a black market for the sale of highly dangerous venomous reptiles. So, you know, you you take that time to try to build it up 
figure out who your targets are and things like that. And then we, you know, we got somebody in undercover and over the course of the investigation, nearly 200 snakes, 24 species from seven different regions of the globe were trafficked. And I mean, we're talking about snakes like the green mamba and and puff adder and gaboon vipers and snakes like that, which are highly, highly venomous and dangerous. And some of these snakes that they were selling on the black market because they didn't have a license to sell them, they don't even have venom. There's some places where this venom's only located in like Miami. So mm. these these snakes get loose and they bite somebody. I mean, they could kill someone. Yeah. Wow. Is there is there an animal that you feel that people don't care about? <laughs> like, is there? You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe like a pigeon <laughs> or like rats. You're probably not going after them because no one really cares about those particular animals. Well, we work a lot of seagull cases. Oh, seagulls. Yeah. Yeah. And, seagulls and, and are I'm just like that. Yeah, they're protected. Yeah, you know, we don't really, yeah, we probably don't really get a lot of, I hadn't seen a lot of pigeon ones come through. <laughs> and, you know, normally when we get the dog one, we, we do get dog ones, but, you know, that's a domestic animal. So don't we don't really work that. So I normally send mm-hmm. that to the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. All right. And for those that are familiar with the Tiger King, uh, you uh, had some work with Carol Baskins. Oh yeah, we're from, we're familiar with Carol Baskins. So obviously FWC is responsible also for captive wildlife. So if you have captive wildlife, you're supposed to have a license. There's all different kind of license from, mm-hmm. you know, ESC to ESB to VRC, which is venomous reptiles. So obviously Carol Baskins had her facility and she was licensed. So the Tiger King really blew up around here and. <laughs> People were sending us, you know, tips on Carol Baskins, and it was it was just a crazy time after Tiger King. But yeah. it was definitely definitely interesting to watch that and see some of the people on there. Like Mario Tabrio, he he was in a Tiger King, and obviously he has a licensed facility. So it's it's crazy to see people that you're familiar with just in you know your daily job on a TV screen. <laughs> yeah. Now, was there anything that you know that they didn't show about Carol on the show? No, not not that I'm aware of, but I don't actually go out to her facility and yeah. have any really dealings with her like our captive wildlife investigators would. No, I did not watch the show, but it was during that pandemic that that thing premiered and it was what everybody was talking about at the time. Yeah, we actually had a, during COVID, I remember one of the tips that came in was this guy was selling baby Bengal tigers on OfferUp. So we had to identify the guy, use facial recognition to identify him, and sent the investigators out there. And he had just seen Tiger King, and it was COVID, and he thought he'd just put something cute out there and just make people laugh by saying he was selling baby Bengal tigers. <laughs> But unfortunately, you can't do that, dude. So <laughs> they shut yeah. him, shut him down, shut his offer up down. Jeez, it is fascinating that you seem to be using all the law enforcement analysis tools, right? You talk about facial recognition. You talked about the financial aspects, and it is an investigation, so all those tools are going to come in handy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
and we use Penlink for our social media, cell phone returns. We also have a tech ops unit, so they and digital forensics, so they're using Cellbrite and Axiom and Grayke and all of those kind of things. We have LPRs, Flock and Vigilance. So, you know, we we use we utilize all the tools that that a regular analyst does. We just do it for wildlife related crimes. Yeah. So, what's next? For your office, so do you have uh, any big changes coming up? Well, we're trying to build a small little real-time crime center for specifically, you know, wildlife. Um, we're looking at a couple of products uh, to where we can monitor cameras um, and things like that. We're hoping to eventually. My vision is to have a fusion center for wildlife agencies. So. Every every state has a wildlife agency. There's only currently four states that even have analysts. California just got one. Texas has one. Georgia has one. And then U.S. Fish and Wildlife has a small little team as well. And then it's just us. So we provide a lot of services to other wildlife agencies as well because they don't have the luxury of having an intel unit or an intel unit as big as ours, even though five analysts and me and two mappers is is not as big as some mm. agencies who actually have less, you know, investigators and officers. So, you know, we obviously want to keep growing. We've grown it in five years. And like I said, in five years from now, I'd like to, you know, have a fusion center or at least have a 24-7 availability for our officers. Right now, the 24-7 availability is me. <laughs> so I answer it at night and on the weekends, but it would be nice to have that availability to where they don't have to reach out to a fusion center or one of these real-time crime centers that's open 24-7. So that's that's where we want to go because you always want to keep moving forward and build your team and just never, never stay, stay stagnant. Good. I just <laughs> thought of the, you know, the, the mappers that you talked about and it made me think of I almost wish I could work there so my career could come full circle because when I first started as an analyst I was dealing with uh, I think it was arc map 32 maybe it was 31 but but we used the animal movements extension so it would be interesting to have it come full circle and has like oh I'm sure they have animal extension things now that you could use and map it so well, I'll tell you oh. what, it's it's really changed a lot since I used ArcMap at the sheriff's office. ArcMap doesn't, I think it's being phased out completely next year, and they're using ArcGIS Pro. But you can come yeah. on down. I'll, I'll hire you. You can <laughs> you can map some wildlife patterns for us. Yeah, well, maybe do get some undercover work too. So that would oh, be yeah. fun. <laughs> be, all right. Let's uh, talk about some advice now. So what advice do you have for our listeners, whether they're a new analyst or an experienced analyst? I just, I, I tell all my new people that start to be like a dog with a bone. Like you got to have a passion for it. I had a passion for it since I started and I still have a passion for it. Sometimes I don't even notice the time of day because I get on something and like I like People have told me that I'm like a dog with a bone. I just, I will not stop till I figure something out. And that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing I would give people 
um, advice and what I tell my people is we're going to turn over every stone. And if there's a way to find the answer, if there's a way to identify the suspect, we're going to do it. And that reminds me of uh, a case we like to joke about here um, of an individual. She was a lady of the night, I guess is the nicest way to uh, put it, being that we're here on a podcast. And she had a monkey. Mm-hmm. And facial recognition would not work on her because she had a lot of makeup and work done to her face. So it was just coming back with her social media returns. So it took me about six months. And when I had time, I'd pick it back up and I'd be like this. I'm not going to let this lady best me. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to figure out who she is. So I'd go down a rabbit hole, I'd find a relative, I'd strike out. So I remember it was a Thanksgiving, and it was about probably 2 o'clock in the morning. And I woke up and I said, I'm going to find this lady. And I just, I think it was about 4 or 5 hours later, I had gone back to 2014 to a comment somebody had made on a one of her posts. And the girl said she was her cousin. And so then mm-hmm. I went down that rabbit trail and lo and behold, I found her. Mm-hmm. But that's, I feel like that's what you really got to have to be able to be a really good and successful analyst. Most of the analysts, analysts I know, like we have a passion for it. We don't want that suspect to best us. We want to find out everything we can about them, identify them. You know, and see that you got to pay attention to detail and, you know, don't give up. So, like I said, it took me six months. That's probably the longest it's ever taken me. Um, But I was finally able to find her. They were able to go to the hotel where she was staying and were able to seize the monkey and get him out of her care. So that was that was cool. But that's what I like to tell people. Just be like a dog with a bone and, and don't. Don't give up and give all you got to to each case. Nice. I like the tenacity. I just remembered that we forgot to talk about your internship. So backing up way, way, way to the beginning of the interview in school, you got summer of 2004, you got an internship with the FBI. So how did you get that internship? So they um, pick an individual from each state. It's the honors internship. They pick one person from each state every year to come do the internship. So I was selected as the individual to go and represent the state of Mississippi. Wow. It was a, yeah, a great, great opportunity, a great accomplishment. And I got to work in the major crimes unit, got to see how they pick the top 10 most wanted. It was pretty, pretty neat. Obviously, some of the other stuff I did, you can't really talk about. So, but <laughs> it was cool being a little small town girl from Mississippi and literally working at headquarters at the J. Edgar Hoover building right down from the White House was just mind blowing to me because, wow. you know, it's it's like. Wow. Wow. That and is I remember impre- the motorcade came by for the first time because it's not very far from the White mm-hmm. House. I mean, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> the president's coming. The president's coming. And, and all of them are just all the agents are just sitting there. And I'm like, y'all, the president's coming. They're like, yeah, he comes by every day. I'm like, 
well, it's just amazing for me. So I picture, uh, I picture that scene in Elf when he yells at Santa and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs and everybody else is like looking at him like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I know. They're like, plus I didn't wear shoes. I mean, I grew up in backwoods, Mississippi. So they're like, and apparently to them, I spoke with an accent. Uh, yeah. I don't think I have an accent, but <laughs> they did. So I'm sure they probably thought, what? This girl is just just some poor girl from Mississippi who apparently ain't never been outside of anywhere. And it really, yeah. I really hadn't. So it was it was a neat, neat experience. But by the end of the summer, I was like, oh, yeah, it's the president. <laughs> yeah. He's coming by again. Yeah. So it's it's interesting as I think back about it, because I would have been working just north of D.C. in Greenbelt, Maryland. And it makes me wonder if we ever would have passed each other, hmm. right? Because we were in basically the same the same general area. We could have passed each other at one point in time. We would have never known it. Nope. Yeah, because I, I had to take the metro, and I lived in yep. Virginia. So yeah. that is, that's neat. Yeah. All right. Well, let's finish up with personal interest then. And I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, but you like to visit all the national parks absolutely and um, so how many have you visited i know it's been over 10 i think <laughs> it's like 13 or 14 and then my husband and i are getting ready to go to glacier which is one we haven't been to before in september for his 50th birthday so nice. that's going to be neat but i've been to hawaii to the volcanoes national park grand canyon Zion, the Everglades, the Rocky Mountains, Smoky Mountains, the Arches, all kind, all several other ones. But the the neat thing with with my current job is we get to travel a lot mm -hmm. and go to different conferences and things like that. So I've been able to go to like Vegas and Utah, Nebraska, D.C. So it's it's really neat, and I get to take time because. Obviously, we're in the conservation business, and a lot of these conferences we go to are focused around conservation and meeting with other conservation agencies and, you know, seeing what they're doing and how we all can improve and things like that. So they usually tie in some kind of trip to see the outdoors and, and Yellowstone, things like that. So it's it's pretty neat. Nice. So, all right. And then if somebody wants to contact you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Probably just by email or my work cell phone. Okay. All right. And we'll put that into the show notes. And so our last segment to the show is Words to the World. This is where I give the guests the last word. Jessica, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Be like a dog with a bone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but i do appreciate you being on the show jessica thank you so much and you be safe thank you and thanks for having me thank you for making it to the end of another episode of analyst talk with jason elder you can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com if you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest please send us an email at elliotpodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.